Welcome to Blockchain for the Billions, where we explore the Web3 landscape and the hot spots of mainstream adoption. Let's get into it. So, John, thanks so much for hopping on the podcast today. Really looking forward to diving into a conversation about transmedia with you. It's one thing that I know that we're both thinking about today is the intersection of how different forms of media come together and can get tied together through Web3. So before we get started, I figure let's just kind of set the ground rails for this. Could you explain a little bit of the concept of transmedia storytelling for our listeners who may not be familiar with it and sure. how it might? Yeah. Great. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Danny. So I think in the simplest form, the way to think about transmedia storytelling is having a single IP or a universe extends across different platforms and sort of technology nodes. So that can really be, you should think about it expansively, right? That can mean everything from video games to TV film, to VR, AR, to social media, to comics, to activations in real life. It, it really should span across that because at its base definition, that's really what Chad's media is. Right. And what do you mean by connecting different nodes? What is a node? So I would think of a node as a different point in which content is delivered. What that content is or its form is going to differ based on the platform. But each node would be a different point in which a user can connect with the content of the IP. A node is, you know, a comic book is a node or comics is the node. Potentially a bookstore would be the node. Or, you know, if you, that's where you go to buy your comics, just the same as Instagram would be where you go to get snippets of content from, say, a comic, but then another node would be at his show at a comedy store or his Netflix special. So the nodes are really the different contact points for the content. Gotcha. Gotcha. So really transmedia is about taking intellectual property or content, right? The story verse, the universe in which a story plays out, and then accessing it in a variety of different forms and media content. Exactly. Okay, perfect, man. So, you know, with that set, then I know you spent your whole career at the intersection of business development, media and gaming, which is why I'm so excited to dive this into you. For our audience, would you mind giving an overview of your expertise and kind of how you got to today? Sure. I actually started off in the investment world and doing investment banking and working for hedge funds covering the tech and media space. So it's always been an area that I found to be super interesting and engaging. So it was sort of easy place for me to get involved in. And then about eight plus years ago, I got contacted by a company and was thinking about sort of the arc of my career and, and how I wanted to get more involved really down and dirty with companies. When you start to kind of move into venture and private investment, you get a real high touch with companies, but there's still an aspect that's missing or an experience of understanding a company from the inside. The interesting thing was my first thought when I was kind of looking for what I wanted to do, I was like, I really like gaming. I really like TV and film. I really like technology, I like a, a bunch of different ways that content and things play out. So I didn't I was having trouble in the beginning, kind of zeroing in on what I want to do. Then it turns out that I met the CEO of a company called Skybound, and they were literally creating a creator-centric transmedia content company with the idea being of putting sort of creators at the center and then commercializing IP across multiple different platforms and creating sort of a thread for the universe of these IPs in different ways. 
I think that your finance background in particular lends such a unique perspective, right? Because as kind of the business development focus, you have to be thinking about what's going to make money, right? It's not just about what's the coolest experience. It's about like hitting users where they are and really monetizing that. So kind of in your current role and, and through your experience, I know you see a lot of different transmedia projects. You know, what are the, some of the ones that you've been, you know, found particularly inspiring or transformative or really bring to life this concept of transmedia? Sure. You know, I'm actually going to tell you a story back from Skybound when we were figuring this thing out when it was really kind of early days. I think we're still early days in a lot of ways, but there's a lot more companies, a lot more people focused on this concept now Mm. than there were previously. And at Skybound, the biggest IP that we owned was The Walking Dead. So we had a successful TV show. We had had a successful video game and then mobile game. And we were, you you know, we were hitting fans in a number of ways. But we were thinking about, you know, sort of what goes beyond this. And I think also one of the things to think about in general with transmedia is what transmedia are you providing somebody that is in the universe of the story that's being told and what is service to the content and to the fan base, right? So not everything in transmedia needs to fit within the narrative or is part of the universe, right? The, the world of The Walking Dead, every video game is might live in that universe, but isn't part of that story or extending that story in the same thing. What happens in the video game would affect what happens in the show, right? Right. And there are times when it does. And then there's things that fit, you know, there's kind of maybe three levels. There's fits within the thread of the story or the universe. Then there's kind of lives within that universe or has to sort of play by the same rules. And then there's the content, ancillary content that can service fans in tons of other ways. So this goes into that third layer. And my CEO was a huge fan of wine and we were thinking, how do we create sort of merchandising content that isn't corny, that isn't just, you know, to sell stuff, right? Right. We used the wine market, which you knew very well as a, as a kind of an example. And we honed in on, okay, what do we think about the quality of the wine that we're going to create? But also, what do we think about our fans and what they want? What makes this more interesting? What makes this something that's due? So what we ended up doing was we did one of the first early kind of AR combinations with a merchandising product where every bottle you could open an app and have a full kind of AR experience where you know zombies came out of the wine bottle and Rick would fight them and chop them up and all these different things. And the interesting thing that we discovered that ended up happening was actually it was the largest, at least at the time, the largest pre-order of wine in the in the least you know recorded history in the US. Wow. And the reason for this was, besides the fact that the the Walking Dead fandom, we were able to, through social media and a bunch of different things, show a lot of data to get that to sort of the distributors to see, to kind of do their pricing and their orders, was that when they went to their sort of user base there, they they got double the pre-orders because everybody would order one bottle to drink and one bottle to keep as a collector's item. And so- we ended up what turned what started as sort of a experiment on this turned into one of the more successful kind of merchandising transmedia applications I've seen in my history of doing this. So it's a really kind of interesting you know allegory to figuring out kind of combining the pieces of figuring out what works, and that's a kind of a, a really good story there. I love that. That is such a fascinating example. How did you guys land on wine of all the ways to tie in? No, the so, working right, right. So it actually started with and like you. And I think this is always kind of good story start not with some 
really, we did some market assessment of exactly the best thing we should be going to know. Our CEO loved wine, knew the, knew the market well, so took something he knew and loved. And then we said, can we, does this work here? Right. right. Which is, I think it's, you know, it's the bottoms up approach. And I think that works very well, actually, a lot of times when it comes to business development, not everything has to be top down. We started with that and his love of wine and knowing the space and knowing a lot of things. So having some level of expertise. And then we said, how do we make these, you know, then we set these to sort of the hypothesis, does Walking Dead fit with in the wine industry? That's what we answered. And through that, we came to, yes, our fans are collectors. And so how do we make this collectible? How do we make this, you know, and then that, and how do we make this engaging? And so that's how we came to the AR idea. And that's how it all kind of came together. I love starting with passion, right? Because I feel like the IP basis, why people love it is because they get so engrossed with the story, the fictional universe, and it really becomes, you know, a passion for them. So rather than starting with like, oh, what ties well to it? It's like, no, let's tap into our own passions. I think it resonates so well. And then I think the proofs in the pudding in terms of how it came to be and, and monetizing it, right? And the idea of there being a digital collectible, it's like one to drink, one to save. It makes so much sense. And I think really kind of captures like the beauty of trans, you know, transmedia of like, hey, I'm still engrossed in this universe and I get to hold on to something that's kind of like a piece of the story. Right, exactly. And I think when we think about the layers of transmedia, I think people really want to think about it about how do you have a TV show that ties into your game or, you know, the kind of the, in these big pieces, right? Right. But transmedia at its heart is really about fan service or service to a story, right? It's about expanding the connectivity between users and creators. So that's really, you know, so that happens on the margins as much as it does in the core. Yeah, so well said. How do you think about kind of like protecting canon IP versus expanding it when you're thinking about these kind of like transmedia opportunities, right? You, you broke it down so well in those kind of three buckets. Do you think the opportunity is always in kind of those ancillary, like here's, you know, another piece outside the canon or is it building the canon? Is it tapping into like kind of the core of the story? Where's the opportunity? Yeah, I mean, some of that will have to do with does really reflect the creator and the creator's ambition and vision. But I will say this, it is real that canon should have a sacred value to it. Mm -hmm. So that is the thing you should go in with the most sort of conviction and confidence and and sort of trueness to it, right? I don't know the right way to, to kind of word it, but the idea is that you should take that the most seriously because there are ways to, you know, there's sort of that first layer of, the, of staying within the, the canon is, is really kind of the most important. Then the layer of sort of creating things that other things people can do, but that sit within that universe, like creating a video game or something like that, that then kind of has another layer down, which is you need to exist within the tone and, uh, you know, there's brand guides and Bibles, right? And, and so that's kind of the next layer, right? And then the third layer is where you can experiment the most. So it's really about sort of time plus investment versus kind of risk. But it's not that there's one that's better than the other. It's kind of right. how you approach each one. That makes a ton of sense, right? Like if you can't undo a gaffe in the canon, right? If some canon doesn't align and you get called out for that, like it kind of undoes the magic, right? You can't kind of touch that. Or if you do, you know, with, with delicate gloves, but then yeah, as you build kind of world outside of it and or tie in, you know, ancillary stories or kind of just collectibles around that, I feel like the world is really your oyster. Yeah. And, you know, that also fits to kind of audience bases and what this is really about, right? Transmedia, in some sense, it's about how do you engage the most 
audience or how do you get audience to be more and more engaged? Now, there's a, a layer to that that I think is a little bit of a misnomer. I think people think that some, there's a ton of people who like something who just haven't been exposed to these other things and they would take that on. But what I really think is there's probably some more set, defined set kind of in human nature or personality that there are some people who are serious, collect, there are the people that get very serious about these things to get into. There are some people who are kind of medium level and there's some people who are light embracers. And that's probably more about people than anything. So the idea that you're going to convert a ton of mediums or a ton of lights into mediums or mediums into heavies is, is really probably more so on the margin. And that the mm-hmm. real concept is about servicing each one. And it's less about kind of this conversion. The transmedia will get so many more people into the story. There are certainly some, you know, in each of those sort of cohorts, there's definitely people who who would love it, who haven't seen it or haven't gotten into it yet or have another thing that they love and don't have the time for it. Absolutely. But it's not about sort of upselling different user bases within your existing fandom. Right. That is such a key point. I love that. It's such a great way of framing it. It's like you're not trying to convert a casual fan into a hardcore fan. You're trying to like meet each fan where they are at. And there's a lot of different ways to do that. Yeah. Exactly. Go back to the wine. Yes, you know, like the hardcore collector fans definitely kind of got into the wine. But the medium fans who came across it or found out about it, you know, and that's really more about sort of the marketing nodes and sort of bring things to your attention. And do you have sort of that flywheel that, that connects those people? That's about community. And where does it hit them? Does it hit them in the store? Does it hit them on social? Where does it hit them? But there's a part of that group that's definitely interesting. There's a part of casual fan that thinks that's fun, right? So you can hit them all without right. needing to upgrade them. Yeah. It reminds me of an episode of The Last of Us, which has kind of similar tendencies to The Walking Dead. Where in episode three, you know, there's kind of a doomsday prepper who survives and he's got, oh, fantastic episode, right? So Bill, he's got a bottle of wine. And as he kind of rescues, you know, a passerby, he's like, wow, you know, I haven't had this bottle of wine before. And it's like, that is part of the story, right? And so to kind of like rebrand, relabel, market that, I feel like it's opportunities like that, it's the devil in the details, but I think it's the opportunity in the details, right? Like those are like the moments where you're like, oh man, this was in that episode and that's such a powerful episode for me. So, I mean, so much to do there. Right. And but what you're really talking what we're really talking about here is discovery. And that is a big part of the transmedia hmm. thesis or the goal with going just to bring something trans to, to transmedia. Cause like you could ask the first question, like, right, I build this great story and it, you know, look, because transmedia has always existed in a format. If you even think about early film and things like that, most films come from books, right? You know, so that's that's sort of the transmedia essence right there. But, you know, everybody has to make a choice of where they want to breed things. We don't think about that as transmedia because it's sort of just one step in a funnel in a sense, but it really is. And so, but like what that's about is discovery, right? Yeah. It's, who are you delivering this content to right. and how people want to digest their content? Right. So you mentioned, right, transmedia has a storied path. It's been done for a while, but I think there's something new happening right now. And as it ties to Web3 in particular, what do you see as kind of like today's transmedia opportunity as opposed to the past? And is Web3 playing a big part of that? So I think it's too early to say that Web3 is playing a big part of it today, but that it could and or should is a different question. So I think you've got sort of two base concepts that apply, which is ownership and interoperability. The Third thing that I think is actually really interesting, but is more so actually on the business side of it, is actually sort of, it's really on data tracking. 
especially with the things that are happening in sort of the marketing space and what different platforms like Apple are doing, it's changed the way that people are marketed to, probably for the better. But the other side of it is, how do you make a case for doing something transmedia when you can't say how many of the people you brought in are new or existing and what you actually got out of it? Web3, you know, the blockchain is a very simple solution for that. Using digital assets to track people's movement through different media is hugely valuable. Right. And because what it does that other things don't do is it creates an automatic opt-in, essentially, right? You're buying this thing for the purpose of the thing. So you're getting the opt-in. Whereas a lot of, you know, sort of web two tracking was about in what's been stopped in some ways is about not being opted in. So that's a real kind of functional value point of Web3. And that's what I think you have to think about with Web3 with the blockchain here is it is not a feature set change, right? It's really a change in function. And so what are the functional value points that are offered? And I think ownership, interoperability, even fractionalizing of ownership is super interesting. That's something that Web3 blockchain is sort of fundamentally set up to do better. So those are the areas I think of right now. And then there's a lot of creativity within them that you can get to. And I think there's certainly some, especially in the gaming side, games that are starting to be developed that are trying to really get at that concept and offer different things in sort of communal ownership or different kind of value propositions. So I, I think that's where Web3 can be. What I see actually, the incidental thing that, that Web3 is doing that's somewhat differentiated is that the Web3 that's working well is really about community and the communities that have been created. They didn't need any of the blockchain technology to make that happen. That is the thing that kind of organically sprouted out of the system that was built. That is such an interesting point there. So let's unpack that because you've got a lot of key points, which is, you know, kind of like the longevity of the interaction, right? Of just not just tracking you until you're first conversion, but like once you've bought something like an NFT, you own it, like your owner, you track like kind of the, the long-term engagement. And the second part of that, I think was so key is, is the community, right? And like when you are an owner, you start to buy into more of the community that is also an owner. Could you give us an example of like really where you think community is organized around some of this NFT technology? Right. So, I mean, I think we're seeing it mostly and most successfully is around, and I think there's an interesting aspect to is sort of the digital IP that's started, that's been the place that's probably fundamentally and financially had the most room to grow up the most in the last couple of years. So the doodles and the yugas and the cybercons and the pudgy penguins of the world, I think are the ones where we're seeing it happen, where we're seeing that grow up and we're seeing that evolution. And what I would say, what we're seeing now are the experiments and the, you know, sort of different points being tried for expansion with real, you know, with real and more financial backing as well. So it's not like it's just Web3 who is trying to invest in making this happen. Market backdrop and sort of all of that aside, that's stuff that will limit the amount of players who are able to do it and different things. But, But you can still see through that cloud, the process that's happening. And I think the interesting thing and what I think is going to be very interesting is that it's going to go from project to project because who are the creators of this project? And when they created it, did they have a story or a whole universe in mind? Are they best equipped to actually create one? 
right? And how do they want to create one? Because do you know, is this does this change sort of the element of creating it where it used to be it's one creator, kind of the expert approach, right? Who great writer, great this or that, creates an IP in the universe. Or is it more community grown? And can the community create the universe? I think there's give and takes and risks on both sides, but it's definitely going to be a new approach in that direction. Yeah, that is such a fascinating point. And I, I see what you mean, right? Because some of the first kind of like digital communities, the, the Web3 native communities around NFT collections, those were kind of buying into clout. You know, it was the first kind of like digital representation of clout and then therefore community, but it wasn't designed with stories behind it, right? These were just 10,000 pictures that were ascribed meaning, but like weren't told in stories. And so like seeing that evolution now where people are saying, okay, I have this picture, but like, what does this give me? What does this unlock? What is the story behind it that I'm really being a part of? I think really, you know, to your point, the ones that will survive are the ones that can like engage through that storytelling. I I completely agree with that. Right. And I think, right. And then I think the question is, how does that storytelling form? Right. So there will be, right. Do you have your community try to help tell that story and sort of like lay out the, you know, that procedure, that future, right? Is it a more of a UGC approach or are you going to rely on either yourself or the expert you bring in who has a tough skill and background in storytelling to sort of pick up where you left off from what yeah. you're creating, creating a universe, right? And, and I don't think there's a right or wrong answer to that. I think we haven't seen actually a lot of, you know, we haven't seen the direct canon UGC get created entirely yet. I can't think of any example of that happening at scale. Not like the other side is there's a ton of stuff where there is a, like take a Pokemon, for example, where there's a thread and then there's a ton of UGC that happens around it, right? Right. Not on the core thread. No, I think I think that makes a lot of sense. The, the way I see it, you know, I think about like kind of the common creator role where 99% of people are consumers and there's the 1% creator, right? You need somebody who has kind of the authority to say what isn't, isn't canon, what is actually part of the story and what isn't. And I kind of see the need for key holders or kind of one or two creators to, to kind of like lay out that story and be the drivers. But then I think everyone can participate. And I think it actually matches what people really want to do, which is I don't necessarily need to create the whole Doodles universe, but as a Doodle owner, I'd love for it to kind of like be impactful and for me to be able to like play in this ecosystem and kind of co-create the story as I explore it. Yeah, I think that's what we, you know, if we kind of get into some of the more depths of like Web3, that's where we see uh, the sort of the idea of a DAO not match the reality of a DAO, right? Because right. when it came down to it, right, not everybody really wants to be involved and everybody has day jobs and they don't want to have a job as their hobby. I think that's going to be, that's continually kind of the question of UGC and of community participation. It's not what do you want to ask of your community, but it's what does your community want to give and who wants to get, right? Because it's right. It always comes down to that 1% that does. But yes, I think that, I also think that the other thing is universe building and storytelling is really hard. You know, yeah, it is not easy for every show you see created. There are 20 to 100 ones that fail and never make it. And some of them because of luck, but a lot of them because of quality. Yeah. I mean, it's I think you know quality. this best, right? Uh, so, you, you know, you worked at Riot Games, a major player in the gaming industry. Could you share some of your examples and kind of the more mainstream what it takes to build a great transmedia platform? at a company like Riot. Yeah. So, I mean, the first thing is time for two reasons. One, it takes a lot of time to actually build 
good story and to get the market to get involved, uh, putting together of all the pieces and deals like production takes a long time. And there are certainly technologies and things that are improving that, but at its base, it still takes a ton of time. But it's really also about it's the buying against the risk. You know, I can tell you at Riot, and I, you know, I had some firsthand experience with the creation of Arcane, is that it was about how does this company sort of weigh sort of the success of this one note approach of, of League of Legends to the fact that the company needs to diversify and expand to grow. So that took a lot of time. And the thing is the way that they they went about it ended up working very well because they went and found sort of a lot of the best of the best kind of pieces to put it together. They took a lot of time writing and creating Arcane and thinking about the style and and really working with the development team and, and sort of secretly kind of testing against the community, different aspects and different pieces and where they wanted to start the story and all these things that got there. But the story of how do you build a transmedia company is a story of, is a really, right now is a story of time. And the real kind of question or the leverage point is, how can you sort of shorten that time frame to improve the ability for sort of quality IP to grow and shine through, right? That's, you know, mm-hmm. that's sort of the crux of it. But that's really what it is. It's the greatness of one node provides a serious value point of that you have the cash flow to be able to give yourself the time to step carefully and thoughtfully into the next node. Right. I mean, I think Arcane is a, is a great example, right? So that's uh, the League of Legends universe coming to life in the form of a Netflix series kind of brings the lore together and then to your point brings that second note, right? So it's not just the game or kind of a YouTube cinematics, it's the series itself. If you could tell us what was kind of like the net result at Riot? How are you tracking kind of the success of a transmedia project? What does that look like? And you know, how did it move the numbers? Right. Yeah. So so the hard thing is, and this is the truth of of any sort of show that you make, the tracking super limited. So most of the tracking was done way more on sort of keyword and comment tracking on the Reddits and other social pages mm-hmm. because there is no connection between big league passes essentially and and Netflix users. The Netflix ratings and all those things are great anecdotal data, but not direct data. Most of that happened through tracking, keyword tracking on the actual community platforms. Makes sense. You're right. So you can do a, a bit of like a before and after timestamp. You're like, okay, this is before the launch. This is after the launch. How do we see the numbers in terms of player engagement, return users that had churned? But there's nothing that really ties it together. Is, is that no, potentially right. where like digital collectibles and, and Web3 can solve? Yes. So they can, because also there's, you know, and also when you think about it, when it was thought of there, you know, kind of from larger was there was the the financial deal with Netflix, right? Mm-hmm. So then the, and then the payoff is in the sort of multiple season extensions, but also, and also the other thing to think about is when you think about the scope of a Riot Games, Arcane is a drop in the bucket, even before sort of Valorant, the other kind of strong games came out. So it's really sort of making a bet on where you won't have the visual on the extension of the life and revenue stream back into back into league but that is a big thing that 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 blockchain can resolve right because you can have you have ownership but you just think of the digital asset you know as the key 
And every time you open that key, you're telling somebody where you are, right? You, right. You, that key opens up the access to those different points. And th- these keys don't need to be expensive. They maybe don't even need to cost money, to be frank. The point is that having them then lets you represent your ownership and or involvement in that IP. Yeah. I love that because it's so one-to-one for me with the example you started with, with the wine collection, where one is to drink and one is to have and hold. And it's the same thing you can do with a digital collectible, except those are free and they can be like super native and like built into the experience. They can be in the Netflix series that you as earned for watching the whole series or in the game itself. So then you can use it wherever else the transmit opportunity takes you. I just find that as like a really great example, right? Of Just like, hey, this is what digital ownership is good for. It's for that like long-term touchstone to something like the League of Legends IP. Right, exactly. And the other thing is, and this is what companies actually want, they want that because they want to have the data. But they also want that because then they want to be able to offer more to those users. There is like the, you know, the net benefit to me having this thing that gets me tracked also gives me access, right? And, and mm-hmm. loyalty and earned and sort of earned value for my time. And that's the thing that is new that's never been able to really be done before that can be done now. Right. That's great. And it really ties back also to that gaming mindset of like live ops, right? Always shipping, always engage your user base, you know, keep them active. You can do that so much faster with digital assets that have real utility in game or outside rather than, you know, wine, which is like, I got to bottle it. I got to meet a manufacturer, find a story behind it, ship it. You know, that all takes a lot of time versus kind of like how fast you can act in digital world. Exactly. Yeah. So kind of touching back to your key experience, you know, I was both kind of analyzing this from an operator perspective at some of the largest brands and, you know, a financial perspective, if you were to look at kind of investment potential of a certain transmedia project, what factors would you consider in evaluating its financial feasibility? Honestly, the first thing I look at is the creator for a number of reasons, but mostly because creators are creatives. They're not all the same and they are very precious about their IP. This is something I learned from my time at Skybound created this, we had this creator centric sort of model. And especially the earlier days, we kind of learned we would acquire IP and find these different creators to work with. Some were way more hesitant to bring their IP to other places. When you look at this, you really have to look at the creator and who controls the IP because sometimes those are also very different and not that's not necessarily a good thing. Right. That is sort of the first point to look for, then it's really about sort of, it's in a weird way to put it, but it's true, it's product market fit, right? It's the transverse ability of that IP. Not every IP can do that. So it has to have the makings of, and that can, you know, there's some obvious touch points, like is this a world that has tons of different characters or a, tons of different elements or collecting element or, you know, right, there's a lot of kind of, some of them are sort of easy markers and some of them are, are less obvious, right? But a lot mm-hmm. of it about the, is about the, the depth of world building. So you will look at it from those standpoints when looking at sort of the qualitative points. Yeah, that makes total sense. And just to pair it back to you, right? It's in the gaming world, it always starts with a good game, right? In the IPOP world, it always starts with a good creator, right? Do you have a story that people can really find compelling? And then it's a matter of, does this really carry outside of you know, the original content? And I can totally see a world in which it wouldn't. But I think more and more, like because the technology is constantly expanding, because Web3 touches so many different things, and if it's interoperability, you, know, you can really expand that market. How would you evaluate something like the Barbies 
movie. I think it's forever been a long toy. Now it moved, kind of jumped right away into a movie. If you were the owner of that IP, what would you do next with it? First, let's look at what did the movie do? Mm-hmm. Well, actually kind of elevated the tone of the IP. Yeah. Changed it from something that was very sort of child-focused or really kind of opened up the fact that it's child-focused, but that there's so much more that is that can be sort of adult without being too mature in a sense. Mm-hmm. So it, it changed that, right, that tonality. So like, what would I do next? I would look at what then can you do to add to that layer, right? Because yeah. that doesn't change what is already in the cycle for the toy, for the children's lines, for all these things, right? So how do you actually kind of bring that layer further out, right? And so- mm-hmm can do different audience analysis and all these different pieces, but really you're going to say, what's the best medium to then bring to extend that tone? And you're going to look at a mix of how do you do it? You know, cause you've seen that you have an audience for longer form content for it. So then you're going to say, what are the layers and how do you sort of build that out with short form content that meets the next sort of big long form content piece? Yeah. Cause you're going to have time, right? So time is the biggest factor here, right? Mm-hmm. Whatever you, on to create next say it's a tv show say there was a couple of the biggest characters out of it that you'd want to expand on that's a easily a 24-month cycle right so the question is what do you do in short form which is going to be places like social and youtube what are you going to do to keep that connection going between those times right okay there's so much there because you're so right in that the movie was targeting an older audience it was targeting kind of people who'd maybe grown up with barbies but had you know grown past it and then re-engaging it. Like, you know, when I went, it was filled with, you know, women from 18 to 35 dressed in pink, super excited about this Barbie IP and also changed the narrative, right? From, you know, historically kind of like cis, white, skinny, one concept of what Barbie always was and kind of like open that up to like a much more mature, diverse, kind of broad ranging. And then you're saying the best thing to do is now that you know that audience, you just expand your audience through this one media format, the movie. How do you then kind of back that up with, various other plays that continue to kind of like build and like continue to engage the audience that you kind of rediscovered there. Yeah, exactly. So, mm-hmm. so yes, you've opened up new audiences, but you did it in a 10 pole point, right? So, right. so it's only proven so much as far as the next steps go. Right. So that's where right. you want to layer in back to sort of lower risk, shorter content and start. And, but my kind of feedback is the takeaway is that you were very successful in extending the tone of the IP. So then mm-hmm. keep doing that, and, you know, and honestly, social media is a great format for that and our place like YouTube, right? So can you extend that? You know, the other thing that you saw was right for the way that people came out is that live activation works really well, right? So where do you live activate again? People loved getting dressing, dressing up for that experience in event. Yeah, that's a good point. And, and also that, that short form content too, because so much of what we talked about recently has been like kind of those longer, right? Books become movies, TV series. It's like, well, not everyone's diving into content that much. And those are expensive. They take a while, especially now that we're seeing so much media kind of go to the short form, TikTok, social media based stuff. What works in that realm? Like what are creators finding as accessible way to like actually build an IP base and these kind of like short form new kind of media? Right. Yeah. So, you know, I think that that's a, it's a, it's a really interesting thing. I mean, I think that's the thing is there's definitely not one single answer to that. We've seen a yeah. lot of People do it, but one of the most successful things has been taking longer form content and cutting it up, making things digestible and 
those are both lead touch points, right? So it's they monetize on their own on those platforms. You right, you you make money as a operator on those platforms and a lot of money. But mm-hmm. what you really want is to use that to sort of incentivize people. Like we talked about those, you know, you've got those layers of casual, medium, and sort of heavy fan bases, right? You can touch all of them at that point and right. build up a following that is an asset that you can use to then create the longer form pieces. So it's like what monetizes now versus what monetizes there. It's true that you monetize directly on those places in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. So there will be a lot of people who will stay there, but you will either be then become a just short form content creator or your IP will become just short form content created, or it has to be a layer that leads back up to, and if you kind of think about it, it's like, oh, you know, it's a back and in and back and in. It has to be thought of in that cycle. Yeah, it's so well said, man, because you know, in a lot of these social media platforms, the creators themselves don't monetize that effectively. The platforms do incredibly well, but it's hard to, you know, you're not making quite as much money, nearly as much money when you're kind of like snipping your content into YouTube shorts, right? You're just getting paid cents on the dollar for the content that you're creating. Same with TikTok, right? TikTok takes the lion's share of that and you're only getting paid kind of a fraction of what you could be as that creator. But it's this distribution mechanism that keeps people engaged, kind of reminds them of the content and keeps, you know, building the IP base so that when you have your next kind of tentpole, whether it's a book, series, whatever, that's when you really hit the buy now button. And up until that point, you're just kind of continuing to engage your fan base in kind of a less monetized but equally important way so that you can capture that cycle. Exactly right. And if you're doing yeah. it well, it's not costing you net net, you're still probably making money. Right. But but it's absolutely right. It is not for most, if it is the thing that is your big monetizing point, then it is less so, this is less so about transmedia and you're more so just a short form content creator. And, you know, we can call it an influencer, we call it whatever we want, right? But right. any, and in today's world, all of them in whatever platform, sort of whatever vertical they're in, are trying to monetize cross platform and not just within their content. Yeah, exactly. A lot of the time it's like kind of build up an Instagram brand so that people will buy your makeup, right? Or that yeah. you can get, you know, affiliate marketing, right? It's not the content itself that you're monetizing. So, I mean, I think that's a key point on transmedia is that there's some that you're really trying to hit the buy now button and you choose the margins. And there's some that's just really just a matter of like keeping the pipe going and, and making sure that your audience is still there when you're ready to yes. sell. The, yeah. the idea is whether it's, whether it's, and this is the thing about your IP, whether it's evergreen, whether there's, you know, if you think about Riot Games, right? That, you know, League of Legends, it's kind of, it, right? It's a live ops game. It's an evergreen game, right? So right. things you're doing on the content side are always about, there's always the same place you can, you want to lead people back to. Or if your, your content isn't, it's more, you call it premium. It's to lead people to the next piece. If there isn't some bigger platform, isn't there some bigger sort of node, then you aren't, you aren't really making transmedia content. You've really just kind of, become a short form content creator. Right, exactly, exactly. Which I think is kind of a trap there where you, you can get kind of hyper-focused on number of followers and, and potential eyeballs. And it's like, well, this isn't actually selling. And now I'm kind of like, you know, the lowest common denominator of content. Yeah, well, and one of the rules of the game that I think it may be well known, maybe not, is that the hardest thing to do is to transport audiences. And so especially people get familiar with you as a certain thing and also just behaviorally people like what's familiar, right? Across is the hardest, right? So transporting your YouTube audience to Instagram, that's kind of across is the hardest way to transport. But in the same way, it is still also hard to transport them from 
from Instagram to TV or to different things, if you have, especially if you haven't laid out those, those breadcrumbs already, if you haven't created that framework already for people. That makes total sense. Yeah, totally. I mean, platform switching is always hard, right? It's like, I'm on Instagram, but I won't be on TikTok, right? And you just won't be able to, to, to get me across one platform or the other, no matter, you know, how good your content is. But I think kind of like pulling it out of like certain platforms and saying like, Hey, here's this kind of like web three tie in where you can kind of like access it all and kind of get right to the brand source. I mean, I, I see that as the long-term potential. Um, but then as we like project more into the future, what trends and developments do you see in the field of transmedia storytelling, you know, shaping the industry going forward? So AI is the fundamental shift. Mm-hmm. It's changing yeah. There's no two ways around it. I certainly believe that this is the biggest sort of step function change since the internet itself. With everything, that will be the biggest change. And, you know, kind of the other things, you know, think about with blockchain is that it is a, like I said before, blockchain is actually a functional change and a functional opportunity to do a lot that current technology doesn't do. Kind of goes back to sort of product market fit. I think a lot of ways blockchain had gone wrong in the past and where it's starting to get right now and more towards the future is that it's used the tool for what it's for, right? Right. It's not some panacea and and ownership and fractionalization and tracking and loyalty and data capture are all some of the biggest functionalities. And then there's ways to get creative with that and sort of create derivatives and within that. But yes, at the end of the day, AI will change a lot. I don't know if the answer is that AI, if and or when it would replace people as actual creatives, can it itself be as creative as a real creative person? But at the very least, it will change the time to market for creating IP, right? The, you mm-hmm. know, the simplest concept is this is with all technology, right? Think about social media and the way people, way marketers acted before. And then some people adapted to social media and, you know, and their sort of touch points and tracking and, and data points with people increased and got a lot faster. Same thing here with AI. There will be people who will understand that it's a tool that you use to tell your story faster and and potentially more efficiently and better. And you can get to the same endpoint you wanted, but instead of you having to do all of that legwork yourself, you're still the director of it. You're still the creative vision of it. If you learn how to use the tools well, then you can be, then things get brought to market faster. Right. Yeah. That's such a good point, man, because you know, in this world of generative AI, I think, you know, you could say that it discounts the value of IP because you can create content so easily. But I think on the flip side of that, the people who know how to leverage generative AI will use it to expand their IP base, to hit you with more touchdowns, to give you more of those nodes that you are talking about and really accelerate. And I think you'll have kind of like the winners and losers here where it's like, yeah, there's still a lot of IP out there, a lot of stories that have been told and some will fall by the wayside as like they just get drowned out by like this generative AI wave and then others will really ramp up and i think barbie's a great example of like you might have thought that of that as a dying brand but then with this new movie and all of the derivatives of it it's like wow this is down to the 21st century and i think the ones that use generative AI the best will actually crush this transmedia opportunity yeah and i think this is the same thing that happens as we you know and you worry about sort of this content boom it's so much easier for everyone to make ip it'll drown out it'll create so much noise it's hard to find the signals or the good quality Things, mm-hmm. right? There's always some truth to that, but sort of natural processes still allow for quality to rise to the top. 
and that mm-hmm. won't. The only sort of fundamental scary question is, is AI on its own capable of creating that quality of content or will there still need a person to drive that differentiation? Yeah, I like to believe that just like writing code, AI will be able to write code better and better, but you'll always need a human being to kind of architect and like put all the pieces together, understand what it is that you're actually building and not just like the individual components. Like you need somebody who can see kind of the sum of the the parts. And I think that'll be the role of the creative directors going forward. But I think as a result, there will be like a kind of a redefining of like the industry, right? It'll be smaller. You either produce 10 times more content or it just gets smaller. Same thing with code. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think the kind of the other two points I see in thinking about how history repeats itself is that I think there will be a real demand from people for people originated content. It's almost like organic food, right? Yeah. And there will be that demand. And then at the very least, what will happen is you'll have sort of this high-low functionality of you'll have the Walmarts of content and you'll have the Chanel's of content, right? And what may end up happening is that pricing structure may work like that as well. Actually, the high-quality content from real people will actually start to price up. Right. That makes total sense. You know, it's like, well, shh, lower quality, lower price, right? But the higher quality, you know, the Emmy award winning, the, the true kind of can't do this through a bot that will like have a premium and like probably even more so. Exactly. Yeah. Now, well said. As we're kind of like wrapping this up and for our audience, what advice would you give to content creators, brands and studios that are looking into tapping into transmedia? Sure. I mean, let's, let's separate. So for creators, so take advantage of the situation that exists. It's, I, it's always adapt or die. So be nimble right. and experiment a lot where it's cheap. And what's cheap? Short form content is cheap. AI is actually cheap. It costs you very little to go on to chat GPT right now, try to mess around with it and figure stuff out. So decide how you want to adopt those things and be responsible to your fans. Like that community and communication thing, but like, right, we said, be sacred about your canon. Those things are really, those kind of fundamental principles are really important. And and I think today more than ever, that really separates a lot of haves from have nots because I think a lot of people in this kind of effort towards, you know, sort of more bigger, faster, this, this, they lose the sense of, of principled approaches, yet time always kind of shows that those kind of approaches really do win. So that's one side for brands. I mean, I'm not thinking about IPs, but thinking about brand brands. Don't ad for game. I guess it's the only thing because it's such a thing. And it's and it, yeah. I, can see, and I see it happening way more and more. Brands are trying to create sort of things you can do for fun to, to then engage with the brand. I think that creates a false sense of data in a sense. I don't think that actually does anything but get people to kind of do something because you gave them a small incentive. Maybe you got more mind share out of it. But like, I think that, I think that's more dilutive than anything. Brands that work, you know, kind of find their their tone and their, you know, and their level very well. And they have fun because fun is kind of the bottom line. All of this is content. It's fun. This isn't, there's serious things and serious topics, but enjoyment is sort of the bottom line goal with a lot of this. That's kind of the, the, the piece there. That's awesome, man. Well, John, this has been such a fascinating conversation. I'm sure our audience is really going to enjoy your expertise. Thanks so much for hopping on. Yep. Thanks for having me. Enjoyed it. Thank you for tuning in to Blockchain for the Billions. If you found this episode valuable, please consider sharing it with someone who could benefit or give it a shout out on your social platforms. To stay updated on the latest insights from Decasonic, 
make sure to subscribe to our newsletter, which you can find in the show notes. Thank you for your support. Chat in the next episode.